You are listening to Veterinary Mental Health, Turning the Stethoscope Around, Episode 10, presented by Thoughtful Life Counseling. Welcome to the podcast. I am Taylor Miller, a veterinarian and a licensed professional counseling intern. Mental health and work-life balance are critical issues for veterinary professionals. While not intended as a substitute for individual counseling, this podcast seeks to address many of the mental health concerns common to members of our profession. Hello and welcome to The Science of Willpower Part 2. If you haven't listened to Part 1, I do recommend that you return to that episode and listen to it first, as some of the information that we cover today relies on information that you received in that previous episode. I also want to credit Dr. Kelly McGonigal, PhD, the author of The Willpower Instinct, which is where the vast majority of the information in this podcast is coming from. I do recommend that you read the book as there is much greater detail of material and much larger scope of material available there than is true here. That said, let's dive right in. So last week, we learned that willpower is mediated by our prefrontal cortex when we are in pause and plan mode, which is distinct from our fight and flight mode, which is mediated by our more primitive brain structures. We discussed the importance of self-awareness, and we learned that heart rate variability is an excellent measure of self-control, and we discussed some ways to improve that heart rate variability and some ways to exercise our self-control. But until we know some of the ways in which we are self-sabotaging, we might not be able to counteract those aspects of ourself that are working against us and working against our goals. So what happens when willpower fails? Sometimes it is legitimate loss of self-control. Sometimes we make a conscious or not so conscious choice to give in to temptation. So it's a rationalization that we come up with. The broad categories of willpower failure that we will be covering today are stress, moral licensing, postponing willpower, and thought suppression. Stress, as the most obvious offender, is up first. According to the APA, the most commonly used strategies for dealing with stress are eating, drinking, shopping, watching television, surfing the web, and playing video games. Each of these activate the brain's reward system, which releases dopamine. I will not dive into it in this episode, but definitely in the book, there's an extensive explanation about how the reward system in our brain is activated and what dopamine does to us. The funny thing about dopamine is it doesn't deliver the reward, it acts more as a promise. It keeps you coming back for more. And if you think about those items that I just listed, those are items that we often pursue in excess. So eating, drinking, shopping, watching television, surfing the web, playing video games, playing on our phone, all of those things we tend to do more and more and more and more. And when we're done, we don't always look back on our experience and think that was worth it. That was amazing. More often we think, why did I spend all that time doing that? I didn't actually get much out of it. And so that's the dopamine talking. That's the little cattle prod that keeps you going forward, going forward, going forward. The same survey that found these strategies were rated highest in terms of frequency also found that they were rated as the most highly ineffective strategies for reducing stress. On the other hand, the most effective strategies for reducing stress are exercising, sports, yoga, walking outdoors, so some kind of physical activation, Praying, attending a religious service, or meditating, so kind of a now-focused contemplation. Reading, listening to music, getting a massage, spending time with friends or family, spending time with a creative hobby. 
And what's interesting is that all of these items, rather than being dopamine producers, instead boost things like serotonin, GABA, sometimes oxytocin, so elements that actually make you feel good. The way that I've started thinking about it is you have a mosquito bite. Dopamine is what makes you itch it because it almost always feels like if you just itch hard enough, it's going to feel good again, or it sort of feels good, but it's only feels good if you keep itching, but it doesn't actually feel better. Whereas the good strategies for reducing stress are actually walking to the medicine cabinet, getting that hydrocortisone, you know, putting the hydrocortisone on and actually dealing with the issue and making yourself feel better. The problem with the difference in these strategies is that one is a lot more seductive than the other, and one is easier to experience instantly. We get that dopamine hit the first time you click on your phone and see if you have messages. So it's instantaneous. There's this reward effect. But as we all likely know, feeling good is very different. So after you've exercised and showered, you typically feel great. You know, you feel like this was worth it. Your shoulders are relaxed. You're not as stressed. Everything is feeling pretty good. But we forget that. We tell ourselves that that effect isn't as big as the reward that's going to occur from eating something nice or drinking something. So it can be tricky to remember and to remember correctly and to convince ourselves that what we're remembering is worth it. Maybe knowing what's happening in our brain will help us make better choices. Maybe not. It's always hard. The next category of self-sabotage is the what the hell effect. And this one is so me in so many ways. Knowing about it has helped, but not as much as I would like. I'm definitely a work in progress. So the what the hell effect is the state that you enter into when you have made a mistake or you've broken a willpower goal and you feel that I've already ruined it, I might as well go all in. This is particularly applicable for dieting. So say you've you've decided that you're not going to have any carbs all day and you eat a burrito without thinking that the, the tortilla has carbs in it and you think, oh, what the hell? And you order ice cream for dessert because you might as well. You've already broken your perfect day, so you might as well break it big time. And the problem with this is that, one, even if you had broken your willpower goal, a tortilla alone isn't as bad a break as tortilla plus ice cream. The other problem is the mentality that we get into. If we get into a what-the-hell attitude, we are focusing on how bad we feel about ourselves instead of giving ourselves grace that mistakes happen and getting right back on the wagon, which helps with momentum, which helps us feel like, oh, that was a slip up, but I'm still making progress towards my goal. I've been able to correct this. I'm back on track versus going into a shame spiral, which sometimes can last a few days. And then you've lost a significant amount of ground on your willpower challenge instead of that slight hitch in your step. There were several researchers who decided to test this idea that self-forgiveness would support self-control. They devised this study where they asked a group of dieters to come in and they were asked to finish an entire donut as the first half of the study. And then half of them were given specific instructions before going into the second half of the study. And those instructions were, I would like you to treat yourself with compassion. Everyone indulges once in a while. It's okay. Thank you for helping us with this study. And the second group wasn't told anything. And so in the second phase of the study, they were given um, several different kinds of candy and they were asked to do taste tests, essentially. And they said they could eat as many pieces as they needed to gather the information for the taste test. And between the two groups, all of whom had been on a diet before participating in this study, the individuals who were told that message of self-compassion and forgiveness ate an average of 28 grams of candy 
compared to the other group who were not instructed to practice self-forgiveness. They ate 70 grams of candy on average. So a clear example of the what the hell effect, as well as a demonstration that self-compassion can somewhat mitigate it. This study is backed up by multiple other studies. Self-criticism is consistently associated with less motivation and worse self-control. So be kind to yourself. It's not just a nice thing to do. It's also scientifically proven to help you towards your goals. The next category is moral licensing. And this is basically the idea that we want to be good. We want to think of ourselves as good people. We want to think of ourselves as making good choices and doing things that good people do rather than just considering our willpower challenges as goals that we specifically would like to achieve, we often assign them moral value. I will be a better person if I complete X, Y, or Z. If I save more money, if I start exercising consistently, if I eat more salads. And these ideas come with the unspoken corollary. If I don't do these things, I'm not as good of a person. The problem with assigning a moral value to some of these challenges that we have is that we set ourselves up for moral licensing. When you do something good, you feel good about yourself. When you're feeling good about yourself, you tend to trust your impulses, which often means giving yourself permission to do something bad. So I've been very good. I need a reward. When we give ourselves permission to be a little bit bad, we are succumbing to this moral licensing situation, which hinders our progress towards our goals. And it's not that I don't believe that we deserve good things. But if your goal is truly to accomplish something, accomplishing that goal is your gift to yourself. If we are going to offer ourselves rewards, it should be a deliberate choice with recognition that our tendency is to counter good with reward, which is often the opposite of steps in progress towards our willpower challenge. Beyond this general description that I've provided for moral licensing, there are three specific scenarios that we should be aware of. One is called goal liberation. And with goal liberation, we see that progress towards the goal allows you to backslide. The example that they made that I thought was particularly poignant was you sit down and you make a comprehensive to-do list. This is me. This is so me. And because you've made this to-do list, you're feeling very good. And your brain associates that good feeling with actually having made progress on the tasks of the to-do list versus just being prepared for the tasks that you need to do. As soon as I read this, I began thinking of all the times when I sat down, I made my to-do list, and I thought, okay, I'm prepared. I deserve a break. Never mind, I hadn't actually accomplished anything, just the to-do list, but I thought that was entertaining and sad all at the same time. The next one is the halo effect, where our desire to convince ourselves that what we want isn't that bad makes us see virtue or overestimate virtue in what we're looking at. One of the studies that I found interesting in this category was a study in which researchers paired a cheeseburger with a green salad for some participants, and then just the cheeseburger alone was served to other participants. For the participants who received both the cheeseburger and the salad, those participants estimated the calories of the cheeseburger as much lower than those who were served the cheeseburger alone. So simply having a green salad next to the cheeseburger made the cheeseburger less calorically dense in this study, which we know is not true, but that's how our brain works. Or there may be some magic words that work on us, and each of us will have our own magic words. The study that they gave an example was that Oreo cookies labeled as organic were judged to have fewer calories than regular Oreos. 
there's those those words that make us feel good. And so we disregard the downsides that we might otherwise be very aware of. So buy one, get one free, all natural, no added sugar, those kinds of things can help us to overlook the downsides or the negatives and make something into a much more virtuous version of itself than it should be. The next one, again, is one that I find very familiar, that I'll be better tomorrow or I'll have more time tomorrow. And despite ample evidence to the contrary, we persistently assume that our willpower or our circumstances or our time availability will be improved tomorrow. And the problem with that as well is that if we plan to make better choices tomorrow, we allow indulgences today. One of my classics is I'll start my eating plan on Monday or the first of the month after today, essentially, not today, because today I would rather indulge. Time is another thing. We seem to overestimate the amount of time that we'll have available. Never mind we have enough evidence to show what we are capable of getting done in a day that counteracts our estimates. The example that they gave in the book I thought was highly entertaining, so I will share it here. They asked a group of individuals to predict how many times per week on average will you exercise in the next month? The second group was asked, in an ideal world, how many times per week will you exercise in the next month? And there was no difference in the estimates between the two groups. So by default, people were answering the question as if it were going to be an ideal world. In a follow-up study to try to counterbalance this, one group was given the same how many times per week, and then the other group was instructed, please do not provide an idealistic prediction, but rather the most realistic prediction of your behavior that you can. And the people who are given those instructions estimated an even higher degree of exercise than the people who were not given special instructions. We have an extreme future bias. And if we recognize this, at the very least, we can try hard not to be disappointed when we don't accomplish those dramatic to-do lists that we assume our future superhuman self can manage. The next willpower saboteur is called the false hope syndrome. And this is all about setting resolutions. We've probably heard that resolutions don't really work. And we've probably demonstrated that in our own life, that resolutions don't really work. And that's because a resolution is about feeling better. It's not about being a strategy for change. For instance, if you resolve to lose weight, you feel good about that resolution because that resolution is consistent with who you want to be and how you want to be in the future. But a resolution to lose weight is not the same thing as a strategy for losing weight. And certainly, if you follow up a resolution with a plan, with a strategy, with all of those goal-setting elements that we have talked about and will continue to talk about in the future, that's different. But just setting resolutions alone gives you that hopeful feeling, gives you that sense of relief and control that makes you feel better. And as we've talked about, feeling better sometimes leads to breaks in your willpower because you deserve a treat because you have felt good about yourself. So our brain has all these little tricks for getting what it wants when it wants it. It's very smart, our brain, and not always in our favor. One of the interesting things that I found is the difference between how our brain processes immediate versus future rewards. With immediate rewards, that triggers our dopamine systems, that reward system that gets us into action right away. Our future reward, so anything we have to wait for, the same areas of the brain aren't lit up, so it's not as immediately rewarding. It's more of a prefrontal cortex thing. So it's something that we intellectualize, but we don't feel it as much as the immediate reward. 
When you are trying to decide between doing something now or doing something later, or not doing something now in order to have something later, you have as antagonists that dopamine drive to do what you want right now versus this hazy reward in the future, which is an intellectualized concept and not that dopamine-driven reality. That's a very unequal pairing, as you can imagine, and that's why so often we give in to the moment at the expense of the future. The strategy that they suggest for this particular situation is to delay gratification by 10 minutes. Our brain treats 10 minutes as more of a future reward, meaning less dopamine, but that part of us that wants immediate gratification can usually be convinced to wait for that short period of time. Frequently, the 10-minute wait gives the prefrontal cortex time to win its battle, or even better, you may simply become distracted and forget about the cookie you promised yourself after your wait. And the other thing is waiting 10 minutes is not as intimidating as saying never again or no. And so giving yourself that amount of grace can make it a more comfortable thing to wait out versus feeling like you have to have a hard line with yourself, which is more punitive. If you have a challenge like you're trying to exercise, the the way you can flip this on its head is I will exercise for 10 minutes and if I'm still feeling crappy and I still don't want to do it, then I can stop but at least you've gotten started for those 10 minutes. And oftentimes, once you're 10 minutes in, you decide that you might as well finish whatever willpower challenge you were working on. One of the last things in the category of that futuristic perspective is that our brain processes our current self and our future self differently. They did a functional MRI study that showed that when a person was asked to think about themselves in the future or about a future event that they were going to be involved in, Different areas of the brain lit up than when we were asked to think about themselves or current events they were experiencing. Which means that if our brain is treating our future self as a stranger, we are less motivated to do things that will benefit that future self or that stranger. To combat this, it can be useful to either write your future self letters or simply spend some quality time vividly imagining who that future self is and who you want that future self to be. The final area that I wanted to cover today is ironic rebound. And that's when you're trying to push a thought away and suddenly it's all you can think about. You know, the don't think about the elephant in the room. And of course, the only thing you think about is an elephant. The issue with this is that the more you're trying to keep a thought at bay, the more intrusive it becomes. And often the thoughts that we're trying to push away are those thoughts that are trying to sabotage our willpower challenge. So we're thinking about being hungry because we've told ourselves that we can't have snacks today. We're thinking about not being able to go to sleep because we've told ourselves that today we're going to bed on time. All of these self-sabotaging thoughts keep trying to intrude, and we try to push them away. And unfortunately, studies find that the more you try to suppress negative thoughts, the more likely they are to occur, and the more likely they are to distress you. And the more distressed you get, the more intrusive they become. So it's just this downhill dung ball that just gets bigger and bigger. However, and here we go, mindfulness again, I'm so excited. What they have found is allowing those thoughts to enter your brain, to be considered objectively, no judgment, and then letting them drift out of your brain again is functional. So if you are mindful about those thoughts, rather than actively trying to resist them, push them away, ignore them, 
if you just let them exist in your brain and set yourself up as that non-judgmental spectator, you can let the let the feelings happen, observe their effect in your body, and once you have given them their time, given them their space, they will naturally disperse or naturally go away because your brain will be sure that you've gotten the message and will will relax its vigilance. And of course, as a reminder, all of this takes practice. This is not something that will come naturally. Knowing is a portion of the battle, but probably not even half. Today's handout will be a listing of each of these categories with an example and a recommendation. Again, truly to get the full set of material in the best way possible, I recommend you read that book. But I do realize that time is of the essence, so I have done my best to distill the most critical information here. And I will continue to bring some of these concepts into future podcasts, so you can rely on the idea that anything that's critical and utterly important will come back again. You'll see it cycle through. Keep listening, and I will continue to do my best to give you the information to live your very best life. Thank you, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. This has been a Mental Health Moment brought to you by Thoughtful Life Counseling. If you found today's episode helpful, please subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving me a review. You can download the handout mentioned in today's episode by visiting my website at thoughtfullifecounseling.com. To have the handouts delivered by email, please sign up to receive my twice-monthly newsletter. If you have topic requests, questions, or comments, please contact me through my website or any one of my social media platforms. Take care of yourself and tune in next week for a wellness roadmap.